You're listening to an Art Gallery of Ontario podcast. AGO Talks are recorded live in the gallery and feature artists, writers, and curators exploring how art shapes and inspires us. Please visit us online at ago.net slash talks. Good evening and welcome. My name is Gillian McIntyre. I coordinate the adult programs in the education department here, and it's very exciting tonight to have Julian Schnabel in the building. What a buzz this talk has given us. So many people after tickets, I've been fighting them off. So, uh, Before we start, I would like to thank Smart Women for supporting education programs, and Amex in particular for supporting contemporary programs. If anybody has a cell phone or a beeping thing, would they mind terribly much turning it off now? What's going to happen is David Mose, who is the curator of modern and contemporary art here, is going to be in conversation with Julian, which I'm sure is going to be lively. And then after a certain point, we will turn it over to questions. And then after that, we'll be able to go up into the exhibition with Julian. So David and Julian, come on stage. Welcome. It's a great pleasure. Uh, it's not every night that I have the uh, privilege of being able to introduce uh, Julian Schnabel. I'll just say a few words about the development of the exhibition on the fifth floor, which is absolutely about Julian Schnabel, the painter, and Julian Schnabel, the filmmaker. But it's really also about a question, a question that over the past five years has always really in the art world been associated uh, with the name Julian Schnabel. And, you know, often when his name came up, people clamoring to, uh, <laughs> to get in, um, when his name came up, people would, would associate him first with cinema, because I suppose film is uh, much more popular uh, than painting, and question if the artist that they knew uh, very well from the 80s and through the 90s was, was still painting because I think uh, people have to have labels, they have to have compartments and the idea that uh, somebody like Julian, that an artist um, wouldn't simply you know, make the jump to filmmaking but would just start making films is something that really there was very little precedent for. There's actually uh, a painting, a uh, portrait of Andy Warhol from 1982 in the exhibition upstairs, and I think Warhol is a bit of a, a precedent, but somewhat of a lone precedent for a creator who is simultaneously operating at a very high level in two parallel creative uh, metiers. And so as my dialogue and, I guess, rapport and friendship with Julian has come together over the past five years, you know, this question has been out there. And about uh, a year ago, it really took root in my imagination. And I think uh, I really want to thank Matthew for uh, picking it up and encouraging me to, to go with that idea and to give me the license to be able to develop a project of the scale of the exhibition on the fifth floor on the very rapid timeline uh, that we've been able to execute this project. And it's a project that uh, wonderfully coincides with the film festival. But this question of you know, painter, filmmaker, I think you have to go with the word and, and that's why it's painting and film, 
is, is at the heart of uh, what I think we'll discuss tonight, and I think it's at the core of Julian's identity as uh, I feel one of the defining visual artists of our time, and, um, and someone who has made great contributions in both fields. So just to uh, catch everybody up on his more than illustrious uh, biography, he's born in Brooklyn and grows up in New York before moving to Brownsville, Texas at the age of 15, where, among other things, he really uh, picks up surfing, which is, uh, I guess, another track, another creative track that he's uh, still pursuing today. In 1976, he has his first solo exhibition at the Contemporary Art Museum in Houston, but he breaks onto uh, the New York art scene, I guess no pun intended with the word break, with the shattered plate paintings. And uh, the first plate painting, The Patients and the Doctors, is in the exhibition upstairs. In 1979, he has two solo exhibitions at the Mary Boone Gallery and is very quickly catapulted to the center of the New York art world. Uh, major retrospectives of his work, and I think the exhibition upstairs qualifies as a major retrospective despite the theme, have been organized by the Tate Gallery in 1983, the Whitney Museum of Art in 1987, and that's actually the first uh, moment when I shook Julian Schnabel's hand, and uh, more recently in 2004, Frankfurt and the Renia Sofia Museum in Madrid uh, presented retrospectives of his work. And his filmmaking uh, began in 1995 when he set to work on Basquiat, which was released the following year, was followed by Before Nightfalls in 2000, and in 2007 by two films, uh, a concert film, for lack of a better descriptor, about Lou Reed's Berlin, and The Diving Bell and The Butterfly, which earned him Best Director at Cannes and the Golden Globes and won him uh, the Oscar nomination for uh, Best Director, one among four Oscar nominations. And this past Monday, uh, Julian's latest film, Mural, had its North American premiere at TIFF. And uh, please join me in welcoming Julian Schnabel. Thank you. I don't think there's any reason for me to stand up. So we can just sit here, no? And, uh, and have a conversation. So, you know, I'd like to... Hi, David. Jeremy, did you see David? He just came in. They made a movie together, those two guys. Yeah. And it's... A couple of them, I think, no? Yeah. Go on, it's great to have David Cronenberg here because my, my thinking around the connection between painting and film happened in dialogue with David around a Andy Warhol exhibition that was here five years ago. But I wanted to you know, maybe start with the topic of uh, inspiration and creativity and for you maybe to talk about the, either the similarity or the difference uh, between painting and filmmaking and where you... Uh, gather your ideas from? Oh. I saw a Cezanne painting today in the gallery downstairs. It was about this big, and it was mostly green and had a little bit of white in the middle of it. And 
And I looked at that little painting and I was able to see how much joy this man felt in the process of putting those painted marks on a rectangle. And to be involved in, you know, Matthew was actually talking about uh, an audience or how a museum seems to uh, function in a community and becomes alive when people come to the museum. And I think as I was standing there looking at that painting, I thought, I'd like to spend the rest of my life at the Met. I really do. Whenever I don't feel good or whenever there's a problem, I go up to the Metropolitan Museum and I could look at a painting uh, or go into a room and look at the quality with which somebody makes an object. Or if you go to Rome and you look at the Caravaggio paintings, if you have the privilege to walk into a room, whether it's at Santa Maria del Popolo or San Luigi de Francesi, you'll be able to walk into a place and look at the excellence in a Caravaggio painting. What's preserved in that? It's worth the trespasses of death and any compromise that life has for you. And so it's been my privilege to live uh, as a painter. I've been a painter since I was a little kid and um, I didn't know how to do anything else. And uh, I wasn't very good at basketball. Uh, last guy to get picked all the time. Uh, but, uh, and I never intended to be a, a, a filmmaker. I actually uh, was a movie fan. Uh, I was always a big movie fan and I watched a lot of movies ever since I was a child. And that was an escape for me that uh, is not dissimilar from the kind of escape and privilege that painting offered me. Um, and then when Jean-Michel Basquiat died, a guy came over to my studio, a director, and started to ask me questions. He wanted to interview me about Jean-Michel. And he suggested that I give him some money to do some uh, uh, seed money to do interviews. And I didn't know anything about the producing movies or the process of doing that, so I gave him some money to do that, and in the process of doing that, I realized that uh, he didn't know anything about the subject, and I did, and I tried to help him along with that, but that didn't seem to work, and I didn't want a tourist to make the movie, so at a, and really as a rescue mission, uh, I bought the rights back from him, rewrote the script, and directed the movie. Yeah. Uh, I didn't know that it was on-the-job training that I was doing when I was sitting in the dark watching all those movies. Movies like Akatone to uh, select the title of this red painting that's on the screen? Yes, uh, uh, it was in 1963. I think it's Pasolini's first film. Uh, and uh, what would happen is when I would be watching movies as a kid, the... The, the landscape that existed in those movies was more interesting to me than my life at home. Uh, and so I started living in these films. I mean, when I saw Shoeshine uh, by Vittorio yeah. De Sica, uh, this is a Which, painting that I made in 1975. Uh, well, Shoeshine begins when you see the sea, a black and white image of the sea. And you look at this image of the sea, and to me, the image of the sea is freedom. And as the camera pulls back, you see that there are little heads 
on the bottom of the screen. And as the camera keeps going back, you see that there are cells and bars and a metal uh, 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 spiral staircase. And you see that these kids are in jail watching an image of freedom on the film. And that made a big impression on me. And uh, there were a lot of other movies that Vittorio De Sica made. Uh, and what's interesting in a way also is I was thinking about, you know, my children were in Venice with me and we just showed a film called Mural that I directed recently. And my kids were with me and the response was very, very, very uh, nice. There was a standing ovation and uh, I don't think that my children know the difference, but Vittorio De Sica's son was with him when he showed The Bicycle Thief in Milan. And when he did, the audience beat him up because he showed them their life in the movie theater that was going on outside, the difficulties of life. And uh, that was possible in this last film that I, I made. But um, I guess there's a part of my brain that is a storyteller. And uh, even when I wrote the book CVJ, it's, it, was, it was written in 1987. It was called uh, Nicknames of Maitre D's and Other Excerpts from Life. I wrote it as if I had a diary. And I never kept a diary, but the reason I wrote it like that is so I could jump around in time. So it was sort of like a movie script. Anyway, somehow, unbeknownst to me, I sort of stumbled over my own life and ended up being a movie director also. And uh, unfortunately, uh, and, and also it was sort of like a, a schizophrenic kind of uh, reality that I had to confront because it's very different. People that are movie directors have a schedule. Uh, it's like a time clock inside of themselves when they're going to work, how they're, and how they're going to uh, proceed through the different seasons. And I understand that because I have a different kind of clock as a painter. And uh, so it was very uh, different for me to kind of put my life aside as a painter and go off to make a film. But every film that I made, uh, I felt compelled to make because it was a subject that was very, very personal and important to me. And luckily, uh, because I'm a painter, I haven't had to make a movie or haven't had the difficulty of, like other directors who uh, don't have another outlet for their work and depend on the financing, depend on other people to be able to work. And I was able to paint and buy my own freedom in a sense to where if I, somebody didn't want to give me final cut, I'd just say, no, fuck you, I don't want to do it. <laughs> and, uh, and I was lucky, luck, you know, I had the privilege of being able to do that. Mm -hmm. uh, and at the same time, um, the film world really has been very, very supportive and generous to me. Other directors and actors and, uh, you know, when you're, a when you're a painter and you tell an actor, well, I think you should, you know, that was, uh, you know, you could have done that or that. They said, okay, yeah. But if you're the director, they have to listen to you. <laughs> and so I guess being a movie fan and loving actors, I, I love the process of working with these people. And most of my friends are actually actors mm -hmm. or movie directors. Uh, so I'm sort of interested in... Uh how your mind works and how, let's say in 1995, you get a hold of the script, you think that the, the Basquiat project that had come your way is getting off in the wrong direction. And, you know, maybe 
Like, where did you get the confidence to dive into filmmaking without deep premeditation or any kind of training, just to um, to get that going? And I find it, you know, my a little. My parents. Yeah. My parents. My parents made me feel like I could do anything. I guess they were kidding me, uh, but. Uh, uh, but. Uh, they didn't know a damn thing about painting, and they didn't know anything about movies either, but they made me feel like I could do that, do what I wanted to do. Uh, and I think that if you, I mean, I guess there's two kind of people. There's people that have had great parents, that, and, and, and they've helped them to feel that kind of freedom, and then there are people that raise themselves, and then they've got that kind of freedom. So go figure. It can happen anyway. Right. Um, but I know one thing that when I saw my show at the Sharon Kunsthalle in 2004, my father died on a Saturday. I buried him on Monday. And I flew to Germany on Tuesday because my opening was on Wednesday. And there was about 40 paintings in that exhibition at the Sharon Kunsthalle. In, 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 in Frankfurt. And I looked around at all those paintings and I didn't see myself in any of those paintings, but I saw my parents in all of them. And I thought that the guy that made those works must have been very, very optimistic, mm -hmm. but that wasn't me. And uh, what is it that, what does it do when you make things? I mean, when you, whether you make a painting or whether you make films, what does it do? What, do you, what is the practice of making things? I mean, why do people do it? And why are people interested in, what are we talking about, right? There's a feeling, a feeling of what it is to be human that is preserved in the physical fact of painting or in the physical body of a, of a movie. Uh, I remember, sometimes I get distracted, I'm sorry, I kind of go off and I'll, Things yeah, pop up. Stay in with my head. that idea around the, the making of things. Well, I just wanted to say one thing because I was talking with Bob Hoskins years ago. I was having a show at the Whitechapel Gallery in London uh, that Nick Sirota curated, mm -hmm. who's the director of the Tate Modern now. But I was with Bob and I loved his performance in The Long Good Friday. Great English gangster movie. And uh, I was sort of saying to him that it was harder for a young actor, an actor, to have success in some way, because people start treating them differently after they see this performance, but they can hardly remember what they were doing when they did that. But for a painter, they can always kind of go back and check the painting, and they know why people are interested, because they could have that same feeling, and they could look at that object. But he said it wasn't true. He said the quality of that moment, when you sing that great note, or you paint that stroke, or you get that moment when you direct something and, and everything is right, that's the same. It's the quality of that moment. And whether you make the thing or whether you're the audience and you get that feeling, that's what we share in common. And, that's, and that has some kind of value. And that, the value of that is to sort of transcend the or ordinariness of your life or the ordinariness of things that bring you down uh, and, and make you feel like there's some kind of agreement with people that you've never met, that people that you'll never meet, but through art you can actually uh, 
transcend death. Doesn't mean you're not going to die, but it means that in, in the act of making a representation of life, which is different than life itself, there's a denial of death in that. And the denial of death is an affirmation of life. So I like the idea that we could deny death because I don't like death to have the last word. And so it doesn't. That's why I do it. I mean, if that isn't a setup for Andy Warhol, I don't know what is. But uh, this is from 1982. It's a portrait of Andy Warhol uh, that you made on black velvet. And I mean, maybe... Actually, you're going to see the painting looks much better than this. This is a sin to look at an image of that. And I have to say something now about the internet because it is, it is the devil. Uh, and uh, you can't look at paintings on the internet. You can maybe try to buy and sell them or see images of them, but you need to look at paintings in the flesh. And actually... Yeah. And, and, you know, last night I watched a movie by Jerzy Skolomowski that Jeremy Thomas produced called Essential Killing. I don't know how many people actually get to see this movie because there's no talking in it. It is brilliant and it is powerful. And you have to see it on film. And it's amazing how... Uh, and if you think of how arduous it must be to try to create a work of art and then get it out into the public... There's so many uh, uh, obstacles between the audience and the author. And so uh, when you have an institution like this, I don't want to be uh, uh, patronizing to you guys in, in any way, but the fact that you can actually, it takes so much energy to actually get the work and ship it here and, and hang it on the wall and put it there but it's so important to be able to walk into a room and stand in front of the damn thing. And all of you sitting in this room, if you end up walking upstairs and see the difference between that image you're seeing and what the painting looks like, you will know that what I'm saying is true. And so, but it is worth it because mm -hmm. once for all the physical reality or the physical facts that we make, what you walk away with is just a feeling, something that's mm -hmm. invisible. Absolutely. And, I mean, that's, and that's the, basically the essence of being here. You're absolutely right. I have to say, uh, this was a very important painting for me to include in this exhibition because I knew this painting actually from CVJ, only uh, from reproduction in a book. And I thought it was essential because in terms of the thesis of the project, was this a portrait of Andy Warhol the painter or was it Warhol the filmmaker? And, uh, you know, that was, this was a sort of key marker along your creative I path. thought it was Andy Warhol, the human being. Okay. And, but, and you know what? I'm sorry to interrupt yeah. you, but as I look at it, I remember standing there with him. I asked him to take his shirt off, and he had this pink girdle on uh, because it held his stomach together because he'd been shot, and, and his, his muscles were torn apart. And... Uh, I remember him standing there thinking how beautiful he was, how he looked like Peter O'Toole in a way, and his skin was very bad, but he looked very, very beautiful. And we had this conversation. He wasn't the kind of guy that told you a lot about what he thought, and I knew him for years. And at that moment when I was making that painting, and he was saying to me, he, he kind of, I think he thought that Jasper Johns and Bob Rauschenberg were seen as serious artists, and he was not considered in the same way that they were. 
And I found that to be extraordinary. I said, you know, I know you're doing these movies now, or whatever, but really you should stick to painting because your paintings are really great. And uh, I'm so, glad that he did both. So talk about uh, the process of painting this portrait. As I understand it, maybe that took two hours. Andy is sitting just adjacent to the painting, and you're... He was standing. Yeah, or standing. standing. Yeah. And maybe liken that to directing Javier Bardem in Before Night Falls. And mm -hmm. that's, that's a good point. Uh, it's interesting, because... Um, so Andy stood there, about here, and I painted the painting of him. I don't make drawings first. I just paint somebody that's standing in front of me. And... Um, if somebody is going to cooperate with you and put themselves in your hands, it's your responsibility to take care of them and to uh, treat them with respect and sort of shepherd them through the process of doing that. And I didn't just make the painting of Andy. Andy made the painting with me. And when they say directed by Julian Schnabel or something like that, it's actually Javier Bardem that made before Night Falls with me. We made that together. I'm sure that David feels the same way about Viggo Mortensen. There's something that somebody brings to this process with you. There's a bond that you have that is so deep and strong because they are making themselves so vulnerable and open uh, that, and they're letting you guide them through their own uh, conscious and unconscious possibilities. And so I realized that what, I, and, and really, if there's anything, because it, it's very boring to sort of uh, show something that you did and let everybody look at it and say how great you are or whatever. What's really interesting is, do I learn anything out of having the process of having this show here? Did I learn anything out of spending time with you? And I did. And in thinking about this, I had to come to grips with some of these different issues just for myself. And... Um, so I realized that the accuracy that I paint a portrait with is the same kind of precision that I need to uh, capture some kind of sentiment that might be in the film. When I made this movie, uh, Miral, I made a portrait of the book I read. I made a portrait of Rula. And what I responded to in her book was the kind of uh, affection she had for her father, the forgiveness that she had for her mother who committed suicide, the compassion that she had for Fatima who was a terrorist, and the respect that she had for Hind. And I felt like, uh, you know, what qualified me to tell that story? I don't know, because I had a very different kind of life than she did. But for some reason, uh, and I never was uh, paralyzed, and, and I, I made a movie about Jean-Dominique Bobby. Uh, but I do have claustrophobia. And I always thought that um, the worst thing that could happen to me, because I used to read to Fred Hughes, who, was, who ran Andy Warhol's studio, and he had MS, and I used to go and read to him, and his, and his nurse gave me the book, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And I used to feel ashamed that I could walk out of Fred's house, and I had legs and arms that moved, because Fred was stuck in his body. And I thought that was the worst possible thing that could ever happen. But in making the film about Jean-Dominique Bobby, I met a guy named 
uh, Bernard Chapuis, and he told me that Jean Doe actually said to him, I'm not the same person. And I actually believe that he felt like he was dead when he had the physical uh, use of his body. He was totally unconscious and through the, is this better like that? I don't know. Through the process of, 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 of getting sick and then having to use parts of his body that he never used, part of his brain that he never used, he became alive and he got to live a second time through that. And so it was an opportunity. And that is a strange thing to think of. Uh, and so you do these things, I think, as a part of a process to find out something about yourself, uh, not just to illustrate what you know. I don't know if I got a little sidetracked, but... I think it's all good. Okay. Um, in terms of, uh, let's just, this specific exhibition, this is the portrait of Gary Oldman from 2005. Um, sort of, who knows what flashed between Warhol and Oldman, but these paintings are adjacent to each other upstairs uh, in the exhibition. And as I understand it, I mean, this is a great actor who actually plays the character of Julian Schnabel, your surrogate Albert Milo, in the film Basquiat. So one could think about this as a kind of self-portrait in painting, maybe a meta self-portrait moving from your own film into painting 10 years after your film. But this is a great actor in a costume for a role that exists in no film. And I wonder if you could, you know, maybe just share with us how inspiration comes to you, how you decide which movies to make. Well, first of all, I have to say that I have great respect for Gary. I think Gary's one of the great, great actors. And unfortunately, he hasn't had, uh, I mean, we don't all behave in the most uh, accommodating way to uh, clicks of power. And uh, there are all different reasons why careers go in different directions. But that aside, I think Gary's one of the great, great actors that's alive today, I think. Uh, and so I felt very, very, lucky one that he played Albert Milo in Basquiat and we were friends before that and uh, we've been friends for uh, what year is it now? 2010. Okay so we've been friends for a while and uh, and Gary was in uh, Spain uh, he had a pretty hard time uh, he was in Spain with a couple of his boys uh, doesn't have a wife, uh, had a drinking problem, uh, that, and he stopped drinking about 10 years ago. Uh, and he was taking care of these kids. And my, we have a house in San Sebastian, and Gary brought his kids over while he was actually working on a movie. I had nothing to do with it. And I knew a man who had Coro Romero's suit of lights. And Gary was feeling very, very bad. And he, I asked him if he would wear this suit of lights. And I had this small studio. It's actually in a garage. It's a, like a garage. On, it was a garage apartment on top. And I took the garage away so the ceilings are tall. And he was standing there. Now, anybody that knows anything about bullfighting knows that the bullfighters don't have mustaches because it's not part of the ceremonial uh, uh, attire. attire. And so that means that he's a retired bullfighter if he's got a mustache. And... 
there was a story, there's a, there's a, a great bullfighter named Juan Belmonte, who was, I think, the best bullfighter ever, changed the whole sport, if you can call it a sport. Um, he stood in one place, because he had a kind of a crooked back, he stood in one place and the bull started to run around him, and he's the one that really created modern bullfighting as we know it. Uh, he committed suicide. He had a, um, a girlfriend that was a bit younger, and he kind of, she left him, and he killed himself in Paris. But uh, Gary, so anyway, there was a book written by a guy named Chavez Nogales about Juan Belmonte, written as if it was an autobiography, but it wasn't. I thought, okay, I'd like to make a movie about that. Uh, I was in Nîmes. I spent a lot of time in Nîmes, and I made three paintings for the Maison Carré in Nîmes. They were there for four years. And I never made the movie about Juan Belmonte, but I made these three paintings that were in this town where there's an arena that gladiators used to fight in. And the paintings actually were in a room that was almost exactly the same size as the room upstairs. So you'll get to see these three paintings. I think in David's mind, having the bullfighter and the corrida there was some kind of a connection. Uh, in my mind, I think that what we started to say earlier about Andy and, 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 um, Andy Javier. And, and Javier and Gary, you know, I don't think acting actually goes on in movies. When people are in movies, they're not acting, they're being there and they're responding to what's happening. And when the movie's over, they're still there. And they carry these, these things with them. And, it's, uh, and so there's something that, yeah, Gary is me, and I am Gary. And there, you know, when I was painting that painting, there was one moment when he said to me, I can't tell you how bad I feel. And he just felt so terrible at that moment. And I felt, so I, made that painting and he was standing there and I, I, I uh, anyway you'll get to see that upstairs yeah it's like a line of dialogue so I, I want to shift the focus a little bit maybe uh, we should stop talking I want to ask you one more question okay and, they, and they could ask you know questions what? and then Definitely. we could go look at the show right here wherever Jillian is I think right? she has a mic okay but okay you know, sorry I didn't mean to interrupt no that's there. fine um, there are quotes on the wall that when we were installing this exhibition two weeks ago uh, took root in your mind and uh, I thought was a great idea. There's uh, a journal entry by Eugene Delacroix from 1859. There's a text by William Gaddis. There's an excerpt from uh, Jean-Dominique Bobby's book, uh, The Diving Bell and the Butterfly. And that I think gives the viewer a, a clear sign of a, a sort of literary um, streak in your imagination. And I just wonder, you mentioned the internet tonight. In the age of the internet, maybe you could say something about reading and your reading and how you, uh, how you read, when you read, what purpose it serves and what role that plays in, uh, in your sort of creative life. Well, I think um, language is such an important thing. And I mean, I, I don't know, does anybody write letters anymore? When's the last somebody wrote a letter in this room? Maybe people in this room write, but I, I think there's probably, I don't see hands going up all over the room. <laughs> right? What's a letter? Huh? What's a letter? 
matzah lever? Well, what, what is, is a letter? letter? What is a letter? Okay, I thought you were telling me something in Yiddish. Matzah lever. <laughs> I thought you were telling me. Okay. Uh, uh, so anyway, um, I think that people are in a big rush. Uh, and I hate to chew food for people. I like them to chew their own food and they can taste it themselves. And I think that you need to take time to look at paintings. I think that you need time to read books or to read something. I don't think getting the message is necessarily the same thing as going through the process of having the experience of reading the book. And there's a quote actually by Bill Gaddis on the wall where he, he wrote, uh, and this was the last thing that he wrote. He actually wrote a great book called The Recognitions. He was a great friend of mine. And the last thing he wrote, he wrote to me, and part of it's on the wall. And he said, uh, had you seen the, the last, uh, the, 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 the great new Pollock show at uh, the Museum of Modern Art? He says, no, I saw it on television. <laughs> and uh, so... Thank God for institutions like this. Thank, I'm really glad that the paintings are upstairs. You can ask some questions if you want, but let's, let's go, go look it. at the paintings instead of talk. But let's unless, unless you want to ask some questions. questions. We've got to have some questions. We have two microphones, so if you wouldn't mind putting up... Here's a hand. This is an observation, which is also a question, but it might not be an appropriate question, so therefore you don't have to answer it. When I saw the, uh, the plate paintings... The thing that actually uh, resonated in me, because obviously it was very, very different, um, did the artist first affix the pieces of broken plates to the canvas and then paint? Or did one paint first the pieces of broken ceramic and then affix? And if indeed, regardless of what one chose, if one chose the other technique, would it be a very different painting? Yes. Um, I break the plates first and paint on the paintings after. And the first plate painting that's in the show, in fact, there was no system for that. There was no method. I had never done it before, and I didn't know what kind of glue I was going to use or what the image was supposed to be. I just knew that I was engaged in the practice of doing that. Uh, I think if you actually painted an image and then filled it up with plates, it would be very, very boring. You would be kind of, um, uh, it would not be very spontaneous because you would have drawn in whatever it was or, and then you'd fill it up and it would look very different. I like the idea that things feel like they're smeared and that they're exploding. And, but I probably wouldn't have made the first plate painting if I had been to Vence and seen the Stations of the Cross by Matisse because essentially what he did is he put white tiles on the wall and he drew on top of it with black paint, which was a brilliant thing to do, but very, very schematic kind of drawing. And it's a drawing that's very similar to the drawing in The Patients and the Doctors. So I was very happy that I hadn't seen that painting in real life until after I made that, but I hope I answered your question. Yes, girl in the red shirt. In your opinion, is a painting a... I think we need to make her microphone louder. I can speak louder. Okay, good idea. It, it, 
it's probably faster. In your opinion, is a painting a corpse? A corpse? No. It's a living, breathing thing. Uh, but it is animated when somebody stands in front of it. Yes. Is there a part two to that question? <laughs> is it a mirror? No, I'm kidding. <laughs> yes, man with the glasses. There you go. Here's your microphone. It's coming along. Sorry. Okay, excuse me. Yes, Russell. Hello? Mr. Schnabel, um, in your book, CVJ, who was Jack the Bellboy? Jack the Bellboy. Uh, Jack the Bellboy is my surrogate. Jack the Bellboy... Uh, Actually, there's a painting called Jack the Bellboy. Uh, but it was just a way of writing about being in Texas. And I described it as uh, I was both uh, uh, an urban dweller and a member of the Jewish uh, what closed community in Brooklyn. And I was also a, a participant I was a small-town delinquent and a participant in a string of uh, crimes that... Uh, so that kind of dissonance in my character was something that I was able to put into... I talk about Jack the Bellboy, and I, he let, I let him be guilty for those crimes, and I was clean. Pardon? My father's name is Jack. Pardon? Does that have anything to do with it? I like the name Jack. I like the name Jack. It's very short and clear. <laughs> and it goes good with the bellboy. <laughs> uh, anybody else? Yes. Okay, the guy with the glasses. Um, I, I know everyone's dying to get upstairs, but we won't be able to fit into the Brando room. Uh, the picture, the, the room with the paint, the pictures, photographs of Brando. Yes. Could you give us some sort of background on that or how you feel about it or, or comment on it at all? Because uh, I, I was totally astonished by that space. Well, Marlon Brando is, I guess, he is the measure, I think, of, uh, of any great actor. People can argue about that, but that's what I think. Uh, and he uh, was a big inspiration to me. And... Uh, he was very funny. He was a practical joker also. And so I wanted to make a movie with Marlon Brando. I wanted him to play La Sama Lima in Before Night Falls. So uh, I sent him a book and some other things. And uh, one day I got a telephone call from him. And he was calling me to tell me that he wasn't going to do it. I said, why'd you call me if you weren't going to do it? Uh, and... Um, he said, well, you think I could play La Sama Lima with a French accent, as a French person? I said, well, this is the most famous author in Cuba. I mean, he was a... a, a <laughs> and he said, yeah, I know, but I'm going to play uh, in another movie, and I'm going to have a Spanish accent, and I don't think this would be good for my career. <laughs> so I said, what career? You're Marlon Brando. Uh, anyway... Um, then I thought that 
I mean, he probably would have done it, but I thought if he, if he actually uh, came down to Beta Cruz where we were shooting and he decided he liked hanging around there, the whole movie would have ended. And, uh, but I always wanted to make a movie with Marlon Brando. And after he died, uh, I bought these pictures of him in that wig hanging around on the set of Candy from the estate sale. And when I was making The Diving Bell and the Butterfly, uh, Jean Doe had written, now I'd like to remember myself when I was uh, glamorous and devilishly handsome. And I thought, now, some people might not think Jean Doe was devilishly handsome, but everybody in the world would think that Marlon Brando was. So I thought, here's my opportunity to put Marlon in the movie. Uh, I all of a sudden stick Marlon in the movie, and this guy's narrating his own life. He says, now I'd like to think of myself when I was... Uh, Surfing, skiing. No, no. Uh, remember myself when I was uh, and devilishly handsome, and all of a sudden you see Marlon Brando there, and then the guy says, that's not me, that's Marlon Brando. He says, that's me, and then you see the guy skiing down the mountain. So those photographs, I had permission from Mike Medavoy, who was his, the executor of his estate, to use them. He just said, is Marlon going to look good? And I said, yes, he will. And so I used them in the movie The Diving Bell he and the Butterfly. good in a, in a wig like that? He's beautiful. He, looks, he was a guru in candy. I yeah. think he looked great. Yeah. And so uh, uh, I made some paintings. Uh, I projected or I printed them on polyester and I made some spray paintings uh, with some, have some resin on them. But I just wanted to make a little shrine to him. And uh, then we do have his quote from, as Colonel Kurtz in Apocalypse Now on the wall, where he says, you know, he talks about seeing a pile of little arms. And uh, that is really good because he starts talking about mortal fear and how those have to be your friends. A horror and mortal fear and you can see that when you go upstairs. Anybody else have a question? Julian, it's wonderful to hear you talk about the Cezanne and this notion of the care with which someone makes an object because it occurs to me that that all of what you do is really about care. But this is a practical question about the difference between the two art forms. Painting it's you in the studio essentially alone and it's a, it's a, it seems to me to be a much more solitary pursuit. Filmmaking is a collaborative discipline and I was intrigued to hear you talk about working with an actor as a collaboration. How far can you push the question in the making of films? Do you, do you choose everybody from the grip to the, to the food services people that are all potential collaborators with you or how do you essentially operate individually with a group of people and, and does that make a distinction between the two disciplines themselves and you operate differently within them then because of that? Well I think a job as a director is you have to build the house, put in the furniture, sell it to the people that are going to live there and bring in the takeout food that they're going to eat every night and any other kind of detail that might be required. I mean, that's what the movie director does. He does everything. Everybody's shirt, everything that's in that rectangle, you're responsible for. If there's a performance that's no good, and usually, you know, the, uh, uh, the actor will bear the brunt of that. It's the director's fault if they can't uh, put that together. And it's their responsibility, I think, in the same way that I would make a painting of someone to 
treat it the, them the right way, to do your best to honor their commitment to you. And uh, whether it's the costume designer or the DP or whatever, I think, I mean, the director's job is to be the director. And in that sense, even though it's a collaborative thing, ultimately you have to decide what you want to let exist, what you want to destroy, or what you want to cut out of your movie, what uh, you have to, it's about editing. It's, and, and, and that is the same as painting in that sense. And the notion of spontaneity, uh, it's something that just happens in the same way that when you're painting something, there's a moment where you do it and you go, Wow, they call that a stroke of genius or something like that. But there's a moment where uh, all the things line up in the right way. And if you're leaning towards the divine light and things work out that way, hopefully you get enough moments like that and then you have a complete film. So I think that there's a similarity in that sense. I, I try to be as spontaneous as possible when I'm making a film. What do you think about that, David? Is that a good assessment? It's a long discussion. Okay. Quick question. Upstairs, I understand there are two large paintings that are related to your latest film. Where's uh, this voice coming from? <laughs> oh, hi. Okay, okay. <laughs> I thought it was my father talking. <laughs> yes? In, this, in these pictures, were these pictures done before you made the film? Those paintings were painted in 1988. Okay, and they, how are they related to the latest film? Well, I was having a show in the Israel Museum in Jerusalem, and uh, when I was there, I actually intended to go out into the desert and make some paintings with Jewish people and Arab people uh, on... Um, some Bedouin tents. I thought I could get very, very far back and they were a nice big rectangle and I used white paint on these dark brown tents. But the Intifada started uh, the day after I arrived and so that truncated my project to do that. And I don't know that I was even ready to deal with that issue at that time. Uh, but uh, I had seen a, a frame, a picture frame that was hanging on a chassis, on a wooden structure in the back of the museum. And just that particular image stuck in my head as, that's what I remembered from my trip, that piece of wood and this frame on it. And when I came home, uh, there was, uh, at a freight elevator in my building, and I took a saw and cut the gate out of the freight elevator in my building and stuck it into this painting. Uh, I made two paintings, one painting called Jerusalem and the other one called Palestine. Both were these kind of portals. One was a little more ramshackle than the other. But uh, there was a group of 19 16-foot square paintings that I showed in uh, Bordeaux in 1988. And those two paintings, I didn't want to treat each painting the same way. And so those two pictures had these objects that were in front of them, and I thought it was interesting to uh, show them because I made this film 20 years later. Uh, and there's also a painting of Rula Jebrial, who was the author of the book, um, uh, Miral, uh, and who was the screenwriter. Uh, we made the movie 
with, and there's a painting for that I made about eight months ago, and I kind of thought that was, uh, who knows why, it's just a bunch of intui intuition, intuitive decisions that might be totally unsubstantiated. But definitely encouraged, you know, by a curator. Yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. Anything else? Any more questions? I, I just have one. I'm thinking about uh, working with you over the past year and pretty, I think, regularly and with increasing intensity over the past six months and then six weeks and then over the past three weeks. And so here we are, and I think this is the last sort of scheduled evening. And so I wonder if you could just share uh, with us what's next. Where are you going? What are you thinking about? And what are you planning to do? Well, I'm going to go upstairs and look at the show. Yeah. <laughs> and I'm going to um, then go home tomorrow and go out to Montauk and paint. And then I have to go all over the world with this movie uh, because we're uh, to usher it into the world in some sane way. So we're going to show it in London on the 18th of, no of October and in uh, Abu Dhabi and Qatar and uh, I don't know, every other place on the planet um, and somehow try to make it back to Montauk where I could just paint and get, if I can just get back every summer basically, if I could just get back to the path between my house and the studio, then I know. Actually, there's one thing I wanted to say. The last thing I wanted to say is I was sitting in my studio um, making a surfing painting. You'll see one of them upstairs and there was a bunch of white paint on my hands and, and I was thinking, I really love doing this and I like painting outside. Now I figure I've got about 30 summers left, but if I go to two warm places every year, I can have 90 summers <laughs> left. So. That's my plan. Great. Okay. Before we go upstairs, uh, we're going to open these doors as well so that you can go up more easily so it's not just the elevators. I want to thank you very much, both David and Julian. Um, I want to tell you all that we are going to be screening Julian's films this form in Jackman Hall, so please get, check the schedule. We have some exciting talks coming up. We have uh, Richard Tuttle, who is an artist himself and a friend, was a friend of Agnes Martin, talking on October 13th. We have the, um, Philippe de Montebello on October 22nd, 27th, the former director of the uh, Met in New York. So... Let's all go upstairs. Thank you for listening to this Art Guy of Ontario podcast. For additional recordings, as well as information on upcoming programming and events, please visit us online at ago.net slash talks.